Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, Bountiful is among the top 20 most populous cities in Utah. It's a desirable area for families and boasts of having one of the best school systems in the state. The city is ranked 23rd of the safest cities in the entire state, and it's only a short drive away from Salt Lake City. The short commute makes Bountiful the perfect commuter city for those who want to be close to the hustle and bustle, but still far enough away for a peaceful and quiet life. Among the residents of Bountiful in 1984 was 40-year-old Patricia York. Patricia was a divorced mother of four who had recently entered into a new relationship with 25-year-old Jeff P. Longhurst. Patricia and Jeff met through Patricia's oldest daughter, Anita. Anita brought Jeff to the house and introduced him to her mother as her date. Anita was infatuated, and she thought that Jeff was the perfect gentleman. Unfortunately, so did her mother. The relationship between Anita and Jeff fizzled out, and Patricia was there to pick up the pieces. She and Jeff hit it off, and by June of 1984, they were in a romantic relationship. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to episode 44 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. The 17th of June, 1984, started out like any regular day for Patricia York. She had invited Jeff over to stay the night. Jeff was born in Afton, Wyoming, and was one of six children to Clayton and Joyce Longhurst. Jeff was an intelligent and athletic man, having won several athletic awards while at Box Elder High School. He was also a successful businessman, which was impressive given his young age. He had founded Longhurst Enterprises. When Jeff arrived at Patricia's home in Bountiful that evening, the couple retreated to the bedroom and turned on the TV. Anita was staying overnight as well, and she was sitting in the living room. Patricia's other daughter, Tina, and Tina's boyfriend were expected to arrive sometime later. Several times throughout the day, Anita had been receiving phone calls from her father, who lived in California. 45-year-old Donald William York had learned of Patricia's new, younger boyfriend, and he was furious. He was still paying the bills at the home in Bountiful, and he said that Jeff was not welcome at the property. During one phone call, York told Anita that if Jeff were ever within 50 miles of him, he would hunt him down and kill him like a dog. After the eighth or ninth phone call, Anita heard nothing more from her father. She assumed that he had finally cooled down and thought nothing more of the peculiar phone calls. 
At around 10 p.m., there was a knock at the front door. Anita got up off the sofa and went to open the door. She expected to see her sister and boyfriend. But when she opened the door, she was perplexed to see her father standing there. He was armed with a gun. York barged past his daughter and into Patricia's bedroom where she was with Jeff. Seconds later, the distinct sound of gunshots emanated from the bedroom. Anita ran into the bedroom and observed her mother under the duvet on the bed. She was naked and blood was flowing from her body onto the duvet and bedsheets. Anita then spotted Jeff on the floor. He was bleeding as well, but he was fully conscious. Anita recollected, I started yelling at dad to stop. I just begged him to please stop. When York turned to leave the room, Jeff rose up from the floor and grabbed him around the waist. He clung onto York and yelled, No, you son of a bitch, you hurt her again. As Jeff attempted to prevent York from leaving, Anita rushed over to her mother's side. Upon closer inspection, she could see that her mother had been shot in the head and body. Anita grabbed the phone and called 911 as she stroked her mother's hand, attempting to reassure her that everything was going to be okay. While on the phone with the dispatcher, Anita heard several more gunshots coming from outside, followed by silence. Donald, York, and Patricia were married for over 20 years. During those 20 years, the couple had two daughters and two sons. They also set up a business named Eagle One Limited. Their home in Bountiful was the office for the business, but they had a second office in San Bernardino, California. By 1984, however, the marriage was irreparable, and Patricia filed for divorce. In April, the divorce was finalized, and York moved out of the home the couple shared in Bountiful. It was the home where they had raised their four children, and held many fond memories for the family, but it was time for a change. York decided that he wanted a fresh start, and he moved to San Bernardino. He left the house in Bountiful to Patricia, but continued paying the expenses. California was the perfect location for York. His son Chris lived there with his new wife, and York would be able to continue running the family business like normal. When the business was set up, York had made Patricia president. Patricia was a Native American woman, and York believed this gave him an edge when bidding for contracts. As part of the divorce, York was given the entire company. He had received paperwork to change the bank accounts and to get Patricia's name taken off of everything, but the paperwork just sat on his desk. Patricia and York's son, Chris, began working in the company. Shortly thereafter, York hired Chris's wife, Trish. Trish later recalled how she liked York a lot, except when he was in his bad mood. She stated, When he was in his bad mood, he became a different person. He would yell and scream a lot and he would really scare you when he yelled like that. These moods were something that York was known for. He was said to be an affable and likable man, but sometimes his mood switched at the drop of a hat, Trish recalled. I remember that sometimes it was very confusing to work for Don. Sometimes he would be very kind and considerate and a very good businessman. Other times he would be very loud, cussing and swearing, and would have trouble with even simple math or business decisions. He would just storm out of the room. What was strange about these mood swings was that York appeared physically different while in the midst of one. Trish said that York's eyes would change, and staff at Eagle One Limited would be able to tell what kind of mood he was in before he even spoke, simply by his appearance and by his demeanor. 
While York had big ambitions and plans for his new life in California, the reality was much bleaker. He was said to miss Patricia, and then when he learned that she was moving on in her life and had begun dating Jeff, he felt a surge of rage build up inside of him. On the 17th of June, 1984, York called up Anita and began making threats against Jeff. In the evening, he purchased an airline ticket from San Bernardino in California to Salt Lake City in Utah. He used the pseudonym Dan Hill to make the purchase, paying with cash. He was carrying $6,000 in traveler's checks and an undetermined amount of cash. Once in Salt Lake City, he rented a car at the airport. He drove to a local pawn shop and purchased a handgun and ammunition. From here, he drove to Patricia's home in Bountiful. He pushed his way into the home and barged into the old bedroom he had once shared with his former wife. Then he opened fire. Police dispatcher Janice Dunn was on duty that night. As soon as the phone call came in from Anita, she dispatched officers to the scene on North 200E. It was a couple of minutes later that a man burst through the front door of the dispatch office. It was Donald William York. He approached Janice and calmly stated, I'm the man you want. It took Janice a moment to register what he was referring to. She looked at him and said, what man? York replied, I'm the man who did the shooting. He told Janice that he was going to go to hell for what he had done and lamented the fact that he would no longer be welcome at church. York then told Janice that she could find the gun at the home and the shells in his rental car and then queried whether Jeff and Patricia had survived. As York was surrendering, police were responding to the report of the shootings. As soon as they pulled up outside the home, they could see Jeff. His body was sprawled out on the ground near the front door. There was a puddle of crimson red blood pooling around him. He had been shot several times with a 22 caliber handgun. The gun was located at his feet alongside an empty clip. As one responding officer checked Jeff for vital signs, the others proceeded into the home. They entered the master bedroom to find Patricia slumped on the bed. She was unconscious, but still clinging to life after being shot in the head and body. Patricia York was rushed to Lakeview Hospital, where she was reported to be in critical condition. Back at the police headquarters, word got back to officers that Jeff had been declared dead. One of the investigators asked York if he knew that Jeff had died. He calmly responded, No, I didn't know that. That's too bad. A few minutes later, he asked how Patricia was and then asked the same investigator how Jeff was. He commented that his name was Donald W. York and that he wouldn't say anything without a lawyer present. But still, York continued to talk. Without being asked, he told the investigators that he handed himself in because he didn't like chases. He then said that they would never be able to catch him because he'll be going to hell. His statements were nonsensical. After the unusual interrogation, York was arrested and charged with murder, attempted murder, and aggravated burglary. He was ordered to be held on a $100,000 bail. Over at Lakeview, Patricia underwent surgery for the injuries she sustained, including a gunshot wound to the head. As she was being operated on, York was rushed to the same hospital after complaining about heart problems. 
Tests at the hospital indicated that his heart problems were caused by stress. Anita was by her mother's side when she learned that her father was in the same hospital. She tracked him down and attempted to attack him as he lay on a hospital bed. Anita needed to be restrained by officers. Overnight, Patricia's condition improved, and by the following morning, nursing supervisor Beth Howard stated, She is much better today. During surgery, it was decided by doctors that they would leave three bullets embedded in her body instead of risking removing them. They stood as a gruesome reminder of the horrors from that night. As Patricia was improving in hospital, a preliminary hearing was scheduled for Donald York. It was determined that there was enough evidence against him to stand trial for murder and attempted murder. The judge dismissed the charge of aggravated burglary. York tendered a notice of defense claiming that he was not guilty by reason of insanity or that he had diminished mental capacity at the time of the shooting. He made the startling claim that he had no recollection of the shooting. The trial court appointed Dr. Chris Jacatus, a psychiatrist, and Dr. Herbert C. Kimball, a psychologist. Both doctors worked at the Davis County Mental Health Center, and they examined York to try and determine his mental condition. They both determined that while York had mental disorders, they were not severe enough to render him legally insane. Dr. Jacatus's report indicated that York was mentally competent to understand trial proceedings and would be able to assist in his defense. During the examination, Dr. Decatus diagnosed York with borderline personality disorder. The doctor concluded that he had variances and neurotic traits that do not seriously interfere with his everyday life. Dr. Jacatus's report also indicated lack of a true psychiatric condition. Dr. Kimball's report was much the same. He found there was no medical history of evidence of any fugue or dissociative states which would have rendered York's capacity to control his impulses at the time of the alleged crime. Furthermore, Dr. Kimball suggested that York may have been malingering, which means faking or exaggerating symptoms of mental illness. He found that York showed no signs of psychosis, illogical thinking, delusions, or hallucinations, and that his train of thought appeared to be normal. Both Dr. Jacatus and Dr. Kimball suggested that additional testing would be helpful to build a more detailed opinion to explain York's alleged lapse in memory. Since York had been determined to be legally sane at the time of the murders, he forfeited his insanity plea. As the prosecution and defense were preparing their cases, Jeff's siblings filed a $1.25 million lawsuit against York. The lawsuit accused York of acting with willful, malicious, wanton, and reckless disregard when he shot and killed Jeff. According to the lawsuit, the assault and battery by defendant York proximately caused the mortal injuries and wrongful death of Jeff Longhurst, depriving his surviving siblings of the assistance, services, society, and companionship of their brother, and causing them economic losses by depriving his estate of those amounts which would have reasonably been accumulated therein between the time of his death and the end of his natural life expectancy. The lawsuit was ultimately dismissed. Three months later, Donald York changed his plea. He and his defense attorney, George Diamenti, appeared in court on the 29th of October, 1985. Defense attorney Diamenti said to the judge, 
We have explained to Mr. York that he has the right to go to trial. He has the right to have the state prove beyond a reasonable doubt those essential elements of the offense. He has the right further to hear those that accuse him and the evidence, and has the right to present evidence on his behalf. We are fully well prepared to proceed that way, but in all honesty, I've told Mr. York that I believe the facts would result in his conviction of at least a manslaughter and an attempted manslaughter, and the facts may well lead, if tried, to a conviction of second-degree or first-degree murder, and it was at that recognition that Mr. York desires to enter a plea of guilty. York pleaded guilty to reduce charges of second-degree murder and attempted manslaughter. He stated, To get this over with, I will plead guilty to the second-degree murder charge. Defense attorney Diamenti had managed to secure a plea deal in which all charges were reduced. Diamenti stated, I believe the facts would result in his conviction of at least manslaughter and attempted manslaughter, and they could very well lead to conviction for murder or attempted murder. The judge asked York if he pleaded guilty because he committed the crimes. York confirmed that he was. However, he once again claimed he had no memory of the shootings. He said that he had been suffering periods of blackouts and must have had a blackout during the shootings because he had no recollection of them. He said to the judge, The only thing I ask, Your Honor, is that since I have no memory of it, I ask that before you sentence me, that you send me down for evaluation. York was ordered to undergo a pre-sentencing evaluation with adult probation and parole to investigate the possibility that can't be discounted, that Mr. York does have some medically discoverable and treatable brain injury. Two state psychologists had determined that York was competent to stand trial, but they needed further analysis regarding his alleged blackouts and claims of amnesia of the shootings. He returned to court on the 6th of December, 1984, to learn his fate. York was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of five years for the second-degree murder of Jeff. He was also sentenced to a concurrent term of up to five years in prison for the shooting of Patricia. The sentences meant that within just five years, York could apply for parole. Following the sentencing, York was transported to the Utah State Prison to begin serving his sentence. He was seen by Dr. Alma Carlisle, a prison psychiatrist, who determined that York was suffering from a multiple personality disorder at the time of the shootings. On the 2nd of April, 1985, York filed a state petition for a writ of habeas corpus. He contended that the evidence of multiple personality disorder indicated that he was not guilty of the crimes he had been convicted of. He revealed that during hypnosis sessions with Dr. Carlisle, his alter personality had come through. He identified this other personality as Dan Hell. The name was curiously similar to the phony name York had used when purchasing the airline ticket from California to Salt Lake City, Dan Hill. During hypnosis, York said that his alter ego despised the church that he belonged to and that he had been trying to get in control of his body for quite a while. There had been an internal struggle between Donald York and Dan Hell. York then commented that an unidentified man with red hair hiding in the bathroom had killed Jeff and attempted to kill Patricia, not him. According to the petition, the trial counsel had erred in failing to obtain all relevant information regarding York's state of mind at the time of the offense. 
the trial court failed to follow original recommendations for further examination of York. The trial court erred by failing to decide if York's withdrawal of his proposed insanity defense was knowing and voluntary. The trial court failed to comply with Rule 11 of the Utah Rules of Criminal Procedure in accepting the plea. In early 1990, Dr. Alan Jepson was appointed by the trial court to evaluate York's mental state at the time his plea was entered. The trial court would hear testimony from both Dr. Carlisle and Dr. Jepson, who was a renowned psychiatrist that had practiced in the field for over 20 years. They both said that York was adamant he could not recall details of the shootings, but that he also could not recall making the guilty plea. Dr. Carlisle also testified that while York had most likely been suffering from multiple personality disorder at the time of the offense and his plea, he was still competent to plead guilty. She explained that York would have been able to think rationally, form a mental state of intent to kill, understand the nature of the proceedings and the nature of the crimes, and assist his attorney. Dr. Jepson agreed with the diagnosis Dr. Carlisle had made, but it was his belief that York was not competent to plead guilty due to his psychiatric disorder. He stated, In my opinion, Mr. York suffered from a multiple personality disorder, secondary to his long-standing abusive childhood, and that he was confused by memory lapses which resulted from his multiple personality disorder. I do not think he was competent to stand trial. He did not have a clear memory of the offense, even though he pleaded guilty. Mr. York is unable to remember his attorney telling him that he would go to prison if he pled guilty. In fact, he was convinced that he was going to be sent somewhere for some treatment instead. Mr. York was suffering from multiple personality disorder during the crime and at the time of his trial when he pled guilty. He pled guilty to a crime without clear memory of it. His memory and reasoning ability at the time of his trial impaired his ability to make a clear choice and to cooperate with his attorney. Whether or not he is guilty of the crime of which he is accused is not the issue and can only be decided by a trial. What I do know is that multiple personality disorders under stress disassociate, and Mr. York was under stress at the time. I would expect him to be disassociating at the time. York also testified during the evidentiary hearing and said that he pled guilty on the advice of counsel, with the understanding that it was the only way he would be able to get treatment for his alleged amnesia. The court ultimately denied the petition for a writ of habeas corpus. They found that while York was suffering from multiple personality disorder at the time of the shootings and the guilty pleas, he was competent to plead guilty. In 1994, Donald York appealed the decision, but the dismissal of the petition would be affirmed by the Utah Court of Appeals. He then requested certiorari, which is a writ or order by which a higher court reviews the decision, but this too was denied. On the 3rd of November, 1994, York filed a federal habeas petition, which is used to bring an inmate before the court to determine if their imprisonment is lawful. Once again, it was denied. He would file another the following year before voluntarily withdrawing it. York made another bid for freedom in August of 1996 when he filed a motion to set aside his guilty plea. In his motion, he claimed that he was manipulated by his defense attorney into pleading guilty. 
According to York, at the time of the shooting, his mental state had deteriorated immensely. Despite the fact that he handed himself into police moments after the shooting, he contended that he had no recollection of it. He said that he wanted to plead guilty by reason of insanity, but claimed his defense attorney at the time, George Diamenti, refused to enter the plea because York had run out of money to pay him. According to York, defense attorney Diamenti told him that he had struck a deal and that if he went along with the system, he would be sentenced to just one year in the state hospital at most. York appeared in court with his new attorney, Gerald McPhee, who argued that defense attorney Diamenti passed up several defense opportunities to accept a plea agreement with the prosecution. Defense attorney Diamenti completely denied the accusations that were being made against him. He said that the prosecution had a solid case against York. There were two survivors who witnessed the shooting, one of whom had been shot in the head. Furthermore, York had handed himself in to police in the immediate aftermath and had made several incriminating statements, both to police and to his daughter Anita over the phone. The defense counsel vehemently denied the accusation he had told York to just go along with the system. He said he had never used such a phrase and found the phrase absolutely repulsive, especially in a pre-incarceration setting. Defense attorney Diamenti commented that the biggest obstacle he faced in defending York was his claims of amnesia. He said his lack of memory basically left him neutered to the jury. Since he allegedly couldn't remember, then a jury wouldn't believe that the murder and attempted murder was a crime of passion. In fact, Diamenti questioned York's claim of not remembering the shooting. He stated, I never did believe very frankly that Mr. York, I, I don't believe today that he doesn't have a memory of what happened. It's not a subject or principle I embraced. The appeal was denied by the second district court judge, Rodney S. Page, who found no evidence that defense attorney Diamenti acted against his client's best interests. Over the forthcoming years, York would try several more times to get out of prison, both by filing appeals and by seeking parole. In 1997, York's defense attorney, Gerald McPhee, commented, It's a bizarre case, absolutely bizarre. Every time I turn around, some new twist comes up that I think just couldn't be true, but it is. He said there were several things about the cases that didn't quite add up. He said that the entry angle of the bullets in Patricia and Jeff was inconsistent with Anita's claims of how the shooting transpired. York was right-handed, and the gunshot wounds appeared to be from someone who was left-handed. He further revealed that when York's hands were tested for gunpowder residue, there was none. He then added, but it was found on Longhurst's hand. When the gun was analyzed for fingerprints, it only contained Jeff's fingerprints. York was described as an easygoing man, but it was Dan Hell who was the aggressive personality. Many people in York's life leading up to the shootings had experiences with York's alter ego. While York was right-handed, Dan Hell was left-handed. In the months leading up to the shootings, York said that he was being hassled by Patricia and Jeff. Patricia had allegedly been calling him constantly and badgering him for money. He said that Jeffrey had been harassing him too, by calling him up and bragging about their sexual feats. 
This was something that was corroborated by Trish, York's daughter-in-law. She stated that York was getting phone calls from Patricia and Jeff at all hours of the day. She recalled how just the night before the shooting, York was on the phone with Jeff. He appeared to be extremely upset by the conversation. Trish grabbed the phone from York and began to listen. It was Jeff on the other end of the line. He was unaware that Trish had taken the phone. She stated, I heard Jeff say he was going to kill Don. Jeff then told Don that Don better have the money to pat by Monday. Trish said to Jeff, it's time for both of you to grow up, and then hung up the phone. Trish was unaware of what Jeff was referring to, but she recalled how just the previous day, Patricia had called her up at work and asked her to make out a $5,000 check. Since Patricia was still president of the company, Trish obliged. York hadn't yet gotten around to removing Patricia from the bank accounts. Before the shooting, York had been working between Utah and California. Patricia's home in Bountiful was their second office, and York had a lot of paperwork there. In April 1985, he returned to California after a trip to Utah. Trish remembered that he looked green and like he was about to pass out. York shared his belief that Patricia had poisoned his coffee. He returned to Utah some time later, and when he arrived back in California, he was covered in bruises. He told Chris and Trish that he had been attacked by Jeff and some of Jeff's friends. He said they had jumped him when he was getting out of his car in the driveway of the home office. York was seemingly terrified and asked Trish to write him a will. Chris and Trish had no idea that York was going to Utah on the 17th of June, 1984. When they received a phone call from Anita that night informing them York had shot Patricia and Jeff, they simply thought it was a lie. Apparently, Anita was known for pitting her mother and father against one another, so they thought this was just another one of her fabrications. Trish recalled, We all know Anita so well, how she lies and tries to set things up between people, and her story just didn't sound like something Don would do. I still do not believe he did the shootings. In fact, Anita's story allegedly changed throughout the three phone calls she placed to Chris and Trish. The first time, Anita said that Patricia and Jeff were asleep. Then she said that Patricia was asleep and Jeff was watching television. Her final version was that Patricia and Jeff were watching television in the bedroom. Anita also had other claims regarding the shooting. She said her father had shot Jeff in the face, but this was false. Jeff had an open casket funeral and his face had not been injured. During the service, Chris overheard Anita as she looked into the casket and said, Duck! I told you to duck! If only you had ducked, this wouldn't have happened. These inconsistencies could be explained by reconstructive memory, however, when Patricia awoke in the hospital after the shooting, she allegedly told Trisha's mother Mary that she had been taking drugs that night and didn't know what had hit her. When Patricia was well enough to leave the hospital, she froze York's bank accounts in Eagle One, meaning he couldn't make up the money for his bail. For months before the shooting, she had been threatening to come and steal the business away from York. It was apparent that there were several inconsistencies within the case against York. However, he could provide no further insight because he still stuck to his claims that he had no recollection of the shootings. According to defense attorney McPhee, when York handed himself into the police after the shooting, 
He had done so because he knew a shooting had occurred. He just wasn't sure who committed it. He suggested that his amnesia of the event was from when he switched between one personality and the other. He stated, I don't really know what happened in the house that day. I've never specifically asked Don about it. I have a theory, that's all. Patricia has never made any public comments regarding these inconsistencies or the allegations surrounding the lead-up to the shooting. As for Jeffrey, he isn't alive to defend himself. On the 8th of January, 2002, Donald York was granted parole and released from prison a free man. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman, script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back next week. Thank you for listening, and please be safe. your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.